Welcome back to another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. I'm Claude Barabee, the director of the Naval Academy Museum. With us today is Alex Rose. Alex has a doctorate in history from Cambridge, and he is the author of the best-selling book, Washington's Spies, which was adapted for television as the series Turn. He's also written Kings in the North about the medieval Anglo-Scottish Wars. Uh, he then wrote Washington's Spies, uh, American Rifle, a biography Men of War, The American Experience at the Battle of Bunker Hill, Gettysburg and Iwo Jima, and Empires of the Sky, Zeppelins, Airplanes, and Two Men's Epic Duel to Rule the World. Uh, that's I, I need to put that on my reading list, Alex. Uh, it tells the story of the Hindenburg, Pan Am, and the struggle for mastery of the air during the golden age of aviation in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and his latest book is The Lion and the Fox, Two Rival Spies and the Secret Plot to Build a Confederate Navy. Alex, welcome to Preble Hall. Oh, thanks for having me on, Claude. What did you get your doctorate in? You got it in history, but what was the specific uh, topic for your dissertation? <laughs> uh, well, it's been a long time since anyone asked me that. Uh, it, the uh, history of early radar and fighter defense um, vis-a-vis uh, Germany in the in the late 30s and appeasement and all that kind of thing. So, uh, so you know, that's... Uh, for my sins, that was what I uh, I spent a couple of years talking <laughs> about. Uh, but uh, the, the plus of it all is that I know a lot about the early history of radar and <laughs> and, uh, and fighter de- development of fighter defense in uh, 1938 or something, um, which occasionally comes in useful. What was the biggest surprise you had during your dissertation, during your research? Uh, the biggest surprise I had I, during the dissertation uh, uh research was that uh, in the late 30s, the British were so advanced in not only uh, having radar, which can be used to uh, pick up incoming German bombers, uh, but also that they they had the organization already there to uh, exploit it. In the sense that they had during the First World War, uh, you know, they had they had brought zeppelins and uh, and other airplane early bombing raids on London, and they had developed the superstructure or infrastructure rather of sort of concentric lines of defense and anti-aircraft guns and observation posts and all that kind of stuff um, in order to detect the German bombers very early or as early as possible, and then therefore be able to scramble the fighters up to the correct altitude and vector and so on. Um, most countries didn't have that. Um, and so what happens was when you have the invention of radar in the mid thirties, suddenly uh, it, it allow it essentially allow, it's not just this great invention. It allows them to slot it in to their already existing uh, structure and therefore making it exponentially more, more effective, which is what happened during the battle of any sort, the mm-hmm. proof of the pudding in, in, in sort of 1940 in the battle of Britain. So that I think that was the biggest surprise that, that I, sort of understood was seeing that all of this stuff had been in place essentially in mothballs since, you know, since 1917. Hmm. So they were quite lucky in that respect. When did you first become interested in studying history? When did you? Uh, well, I think as a, uh, as a, you know, a young boy, I used to read, I don't know if they have them here, the, uh, the, the old 1950s sort of ladybird books, um, uh, you know, like, you know, great historical uh, events and, and, and uh, characters, you know, like uh, Walter Raleigh and, uh, you know, Nelson and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and Julius Caesar and things like that. And so I learned a lot from those. I read, I read a 
mean, dozens and dozens of them. Nowadays, of course, they're regarded as hopelessly out of date, <laughs> and, um, uh, slightly, uh, 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 you know, slightly uh, unprogressive, shall we say? Right. Sure. But they, um, you know, they do. They did what they did do was ignite, you know, a, a, a very keen interest in history, and uh, you know, the events that that all of these had, uh, you know, that all of that happened back then. Uh, it also helped, of course, that you know, my father, my late father, used to be a, a historian as well. So we, we dealt in different areas. Uh, so you know, you, you know, when you grow up with that kind of background, you, you it's sort of the family business in sure, a way. Yeah. Whereabouts in the UK were you born? Uh, I wasn't born in the UK at all. I was born in New York City. Really? Uh, yeah. My mother's American. I don't sound like it. I know. The uh, my mother was my mother's American. You see, and uh, my father's uh, British, mm -hmm. and so. so um, I was born in, in New York and then, uh, you know, when I was younger, I, we moved to Australia. So, mm -hmm. um, and I, and then I went to, uh, some school and, and university in England. And then I came back here basically back to the homeland, gotcha. uh, about 20, odd, 20 odd years ago. The lion and the fox, two rival spies and the secret plot to build a Confederate Navy. And, and I, I appreciate it. Had a, a great opportunity to uh, read the book as I try to do for every interview can you tell us, tell, describe the city of Liverpool at the time of the U.S. Civil War? Uh, Liverpool uh, was it was basically the, the greatest port city metropolis in the in the world. Um, it was a kind of the second or third largest city in, in Britain at the time, and, and all the attention gets paid to London, of course. But Liverpool, there were more ships built in Liverpool each year than the rest of the world combined. Uh, and on top of that you have uh it's it is a major manufacturing um uh you know a hub and uh and, and and so we would get it would get imports it would import and export from around the world constantly so it was basically the busiest port in the world and uh so it's incredibly wealthy also you know extremely uh, you know dangerous there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of squalor there a lot of crime a lot of drunkenness that kind of thing so it, it's this, it's this very strange and interesting city um, but the, you know, the, the point of it was, is that they, they had the giant shipbuilders there and, uh, you know, going back, you know, where they'd been building ships for hundreds of years, you had the, the, the greatest expertise in the world in shipbuilding. Um, plus, you know, they, the, it, from, from the American perspective, it had very, very old trading links with the South. Uh, originally back in the say 18th century, uh, most of these trading links had, had involved slaves, uh, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, once the British kind of abolished uh, the slave trade or outlawed it, you know, a lot of these old family uh, concerns sort of went into the cotton trade instead. And so they dealt in southern cotton. But the time of the civil, which was the sort of the great explosive uh, industry of the 19th century, I think people tend to forget nowadays um, how big and important cotton was. The South exported millions of, of bushels of this stuff uh, to Liverpool, where it was bought and sold in the in, in what was the um, the beginnings of the of a, of a futures market, um, you know, a very early uh, rendition of it. And from there, it was then sold on to the huge factories and where and manufactories of of industrialized Britain, where it was then uh, converted into beautiful textiles and then re-exported to the rest of the world. So about <clears throat> You know, about I, I, can't, I don't remember the exact number, but 
you know, you know, Liverpool itself, there were about 80 or 90% of Southern cotton exports went through Liverpool alone in, in a single year. So it was a, it was a colossal, uh, it was a colossal and a colossally important city during the civil war. Yeah. The, that really struck me about the number of bales of, of cotton that were coming in, I think on almost a daily basis to Liverpool, uh, and the, the real extent of, of of this. Now, when does cotton from the South become supplanted by cotton from India in, in Liverpool? Is that after the Civil War, immediately after? Uh, it, was, it was after the Civil War. Uh, during the 1850s, there'd been some, and, and, and I, should, I should mention that there's a, there's a great, great uh, fact and figure out there that says something like uh, that, uh, you know, about a fifth of the British population indirectly or directly relied on the cotton trade alone for their daily bread. Uh, you know, that includes obviously factory workers, uh, cotton traders, sailors, shipbuilders, financiers, uh, and just even, you know, people working in bakeries supplying, you know, the bread to literally the bread to, uh, to, to feed workers and so on. So that's, I mean, cotton was extremely vital to the British economy without it. If it stopped suddenly, there was uh, there were there was a you know a prediction that it would essentially cause a national heart attack. Um, the Southerners, of course, knew this perfectly well, and so during the 1850s, there was a, a, a there were some degrees of, of alarm or concern uh, about what would happen if the the North and the South went to war. And the cotton stopped flowing for some reason, and so there were attempts to get off the uh, off the Dixie Teat, so to speak, and to start, you know, exploiting their own empire for cotton in places like India and Egypt, especially. What they were finding was it's a very slow business to build up a, a you know a huge and profitable concern like like cotton in Egypt and India, and they, you know, it takes, it's not something you just you know, plant some seeds and next year you've got this bumper crop. Great. Uh, it's, um, it's, you know, it takes decades uh, to, to grow it uh, and to properly uh, learn how to cultivate it. And so what they were finding was, is that by the time of the civil war, there was a little bit of Egyptian cotton, a little bit of Indian cotton. They were slowly coming on tap, but what they were finding was it just, it just didn't have the quality of the American stuff. The American stuff was was a a a plus grade, and the the Indian and Egyptian stuff was kind of C grade. And if you're a if you're a, if you're a manufacturer or you know a, a, a textile manufacturer and you want high quality uh, raw material to sell at big markup rates when you when you refine it, then you need to have the top quality stuff. And so there really wasn't much Indian and Egyptian cotton around in Britain at that time. Certainly not enough to to stop being reliant on on uh, southern cotton. I'd like to go back momentarily about the shipyards themselves. Now, was the Royal Navy uh, building ships there, or was it primarily a shipbuilding center for merchant ships, or was it both? It was mostly it was mostly merchant ships, but there were uh, there was quite a lot of Royal Navy uh, uh, business there. Usually of this, uh, this is speaking very generally, of course, usually of the smaller stuff, um, you know, like small gunboats, all that kind of mm -hmm. smaller gunboats, that kind of thing. Um, you know, the biggest stuff tended to be made, you know, the really big stuff tended to be made in, in uh, up in Scotland or, or down south. 
Um, but you know, in Liverpool, they had the the real they were real innovations happening. I mean, they were they were moving away from wood uh, from the age of sail into the age of steam. It was a great transition era, almost a, a little like our own with uh, uh, you know with AI and so on. Um, so you know, but the, you know, the, the the leading innovator in terms of iron iron ships was was the Laird's Shipyard um, Company in Liverpool, um, who were later name dropped by uh, Jules Verne in uh, um, Twenty Thousand Leagues Beneath the Sea, where the Nautilus is uh, is Captain Nemo's Nautilus is made of uh, Laird's iron cladding because it was the best in the world. Why wouldn't you use them? Um, so yeah, to answer your question, Liverpool was mostly uh, merchant and civil. Who was Thomas Dudley and why was he in Liverpool at this time? <laughs> uh, Thomas Dudley was, uh, he's one of the, he's one of the hero, you know, one of the heroes or protagonists of the book. Um, he was a, the son of a kind of a humble Quaker, New Jersey farmer, um, and, uh, who died early. And, uh, so young Thomas went to work on his, you know, widowed mother's farm with his siblings and um, you know he was from a very early age. He was from a very early age. He was you know uh, you know very very rigid um, in terms of uh, morality. I mean it was part of, part of to do with his uh, Quaker background. And so he was from the I mean from the 1830s or 1840s he was strictly abolitionist. I mean he was he was a real zealot to destroy and uproot this you know the slave power. Um, and, you know, he went so far as to dress himself up as a what he considered to be a, a southern slave trader outfit, which consisted of a, a large hat and, uh, and, uh, and a couple of pistols and a whip. And he would travel down across the Mason-Dixon line. And this was, you know, this was dangerous work. And he would try and rescue, um, you know, uh, blacks who'd been enslaved or kidnapped from free states and brought down south to work on the work on the you know the cotton farms in the deep south and so on he would go back and he would either buy them at, at auctions or he would rescue them or you know so do them in some way and bring them back home so you know this this is a man who really put his his kind of life on the line certainly um and he was uh you know he, he trained himself and he became you know he became a, a local lawyer in, in new jersey and he was doing okay for himself he was fine um in the 1850s he starts getting into republican politics um, and in the uh, in the con presidential convention, he uh, in, in 1860, I think he, he he kind of does some signal service by rather deftly pulling some wires uh, behind the scenes, and so he helps persuade the New Jersey delegation to uh, plump for uh, Abraham Lincoln as as their as their as their main man rather than their their own preferred candidate. Um, now, for this service, a little later on, you know, as, as these things happen, Lincoln goes to the White House uh, and he calls in Dudley and he says, look, you know, thanks very much for the help. <laughs> uh, what would you like? Would you like to be minister or ambassador to Japan or would you like to be consul to Liverpool? And as it happened, I mean, being a, an, an ambassador is, of course, a much more senior position than, a, than being a, a consul. Um, in a, in a sort of second city. Uh, but uh, several years before, uh, Dudley had uh, been involved in this, in this um, sort of a, a, an accident while traveling on a, on a passenger 
passenger, not a passenger liner, a uh, passenger uh, ferry um, in New Jersey. And it was a winter's night and the, the ferry went down. It was all, it got set on fire. It was, it was horrible. Uh, it, there were dozens and of scores of people who died of, of, of burning or of, um, of, 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 of being frozen to death in the river. He himself was frozen uh, and was found in an ice flow and was counted as dead. But then he had this kind of miraculous um miraculous recovery and so ever since then dudley had believed himself uh first to have some kind of divine mission to conduct you know that he would he you know that he was he was destined to survive and do something great um and second he was also he never his health never really quite recovered so when he was offered uh japan or liverpool he took liverpool really because it was a lot closer to America back home, and also it was he was closer to good doctors. I mean, that was really what <laughs> kind of uh, prompted him to choose Liverpool over 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 Japan, um, and that's why he ended up going to to Liverpool. Um, now he thought that it would, he would just be about a year there, which was the usual amount of time that a consul spent abroad, you know, basically stamping papers or arranging passports or paying off, you know, uh, debts if a, if a sailor got a bit too drunk and ended up in jail overnight um and he thought he'd be back within a year but it turned out that he kind of unwittingly inherited the you know the most critical intelligence posting in the world um and from and that's where the sort of the story begins now the other main character in this book is james bullock how important was he for the confederates uh bullock was was central to the confederates bullock was an interesting character he was uh, born in georgia an old you know, an old Georgia family, all slaveholders. He himself was sent to school at a very early age, boarding school to Connecticut. Um, and he left home in his mid-teens to join the, the uh, you know, the old steam navy, uh, the old navy, rather. Um, so, he, I mean, he never owned any slaves. He, had, he didn't have much of a, he didn't have much time in, in the South. Uh, he occasionally visited his family. But essentially, he was at sea from the, you know, from the 1830s, 1840s on. Um, and he was, uh, you know, he worked his way up the ranks of the, of the old Navy, you know, he became a sort of lieutenant, um, uh, you know, he was getting on a bit and, you know, promotion at that time was very, very, very slow. Um, but he was, he was always trying to, he was interested in, in new things. He was interested in steam. He was interested in engine design. He was interested in, uh, you know, ex ex you know, seeing more of the world. And uh, but so what he did was he, he kind of retires after a while and becomes a captain on a on a on a, on a for a for private companies on the, on the mail ships you know good you know sailing essentially his his route was New York Havana and back again um, with a stop off in New Orleans or somewhere like that um, and he does that for a while but he also can you know he's 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 a senior figure at this company and he 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 learns his way around a dockyard he commissions mail ships and he and he realize you know he understands how to this would be very important later he understands how you know building contracts work and how 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 builders get paid and what you need to specify and your blueprints and all this kind of stuff which not many naval officers actually knew yet bullock actually had his you know had real hands-on experience with this stuff Anyway, so the um, the war breaks out, um, and uh, Bullock again had a romantic attachment to the South. He wasn't he wasn't based there; hadn't been there in years. But he plumps for, like many former Confederate officers, he plumps for his uh, you know his sort of 
for, for the Southern Navy. And he, he sort of, uh, he, but, but before he can actually take command of any ships in the, in the new Confederate Navy, which I think at the time consisted of one, sh one ocean going ship anyway, uh, he gets recruited into the secret world for a mission to Britain by Stephen Mallory, who is the Confederate Secretary of the Navy. And it's a very secret, but critical um, mission. And that is he is to go to Britain, specifically Liverpool, and his, his job is to build, uh, buy, commission, so, any way he can acquire a Confederate Navy consisting of um, sort of three, generally speaking, three different types of vessels. Uh, first, he would start off on a fleet of swift blockade runners, um, that who were in, which were intended to break Lincoln's blockade by smuggling out uh, cotton into Liverpool and to bring in needed supplies for the Confederacy, including armaments, um, you know, drugs, uh, you know, just you know, war, war materials, um, ammunition. Uh, the second stage would be he was to uh, design and acquire uh some uh, commerce raiders and these would later become uh, famous ships like the css alabama florida shenandoah and you know, their job was to raid and ravage northern merchantmen in order to try and prompt lincoln or the, them into pushing lincoln to to seek a, a, an armistice of some kind with the south to stop you know to, to preserve their profits and third uh, if that didn't work, he was to build a very modern small navy of ironclads uh, in the in the in the form of what were called rams, uh, laird rams, uh, named after the shipyard lairds that were making them. And these were well, they were rams. They were <laughs> very uh, very advanced ironclad ships that had a giant ram at the front, along with and they had you know swiveling uh, guns and all that kind of stuff. And their job was to just smash the U.S. Navy at sea and to drown them by running into them. Um, oh, so the, so the, the, the yeah. uh, sorry to interrupt, the, there is a, a scene in um, War of the Worlds and there's the HMS Thunderchild, which is a ram ship that's used against the Martians. Is So the, the British were actually building, HMS Thunderchild was not a real ship, but it was based in concept on ships that were being developed by the British at this time. Um, good question. I, I I wasn't aware of that. I wish I had known that <laughs> at the time I was writing. The book. Uh, I do remember reading the War of the Worlds, but it was thirty years ago, and and somehow Thunderchild has had escaped my memory. So thank you for reminding me that I'll put that into the paperback edition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in about a year's time. Uh, but uh, that's a great question. Um, no, they, they were, the Rams weren't being commonly built. They weren't all over the place. It was, it was this was quite a specific custom job uh you know for for uh for what's his name for uh for for bullock mm -hmm. um you know that these things that have a projecting ram that they would smash into uh into the american hulls and, and sink they seem to have a bit of a resurgence during the civil war because you have ellet i think it was charles ellet building the ellet ram ships for the north um and mm -hmm. you see a counter from from the south on this um before they eventually fade away. I think we only built one ram ship in the 1890s, the Katahdin, after this. Uh, what was Bullock's relationship to Theodore Roosevelt? Uh, well, at the time, not very much. But the uh, you know, but the, later on, uh, Bullock was um, 
I can't remember exactly. I think he was his, uh, he was an uncle, sort of a step uncle of, uh, of, of a kind. And, but after, you know, because Bullet, you know, survives off the war. He's, he's around for a very long time. And, uh, is, you know, as I'm sure your, you and your listeners know, you know, Theodore Roosevelt was very interested in the Navy and wrote a, you know, a very, very uh, powerful book on, on sea power. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of his views, interestingly enough, a lot of his views came from his discussions with the man he called Uncle Jimmy, um, who would later relate to him some of his, his old, you know, s- spy game stories from the war. Um, I think uh, the, the the name of the book right now escapes me, but the the actual Roosevelt book that came out of this that was the huge bestseller that put that put Roosevelt on the map uh, as the coming young man. Uh, you know, it was actually dedicated to James Bullock, interestingly enough, um, uh, with, you know, in the, in the sort of on the dedication page, which is, you know, it's sort of an interesting uh, connection. But the, but so, the, you know, Bullock was kind of related to, to, to Theodore Roosevelt in, in that sense. I think it was, I think his stepsister had met, was Roosevelt's mother. Something, it's something like that anyway. Mm-hmm. How did England support the South or more specifically the Confederate Navy and also, did the British government know that Confederate vessels of war were being built in England and Liverpool? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, just uh, you know, a complicated question. Let me let me try and um, uh, break it down to its essentials. Uh, what you what you have to realize uh, is uh, what, what we have to figure out is is the sort of the British attitude towards the competence in the Civil War. You know, what was British foreign policy? Um, in a nutshell, at about the same time as Lincoln declared the naval blockade of the South, uh, the British government declared neutrality in this in this fight across the ocean. Um, this was a, a kind of a surprise and a disappointment to both sides. Uh, both sides had made their had made uh, had tried to get the British in on their side, um, but the British stayed aloof. Uh, there are any number of reasons for this. Um, one of which was is that the British simply, you know, they simply didn't understand <laughs> what they were fighting about. They couldn't really, they didn't, it didn't really compute to them. Uh, for instance, if you, if you read British newspapers of the late 50s, early, early 1860s, you know, around there, you know, the Southerners were, there was like these, all these conflicting and on odd attitudes towards them and the Northerners. So, uh, so the Southerners were regarded as, you know, well, they're, they're just like us. They're, you know, all these plantation aristocrats. They're all, they're all gentlemen. Um, <laughs> and then there were the people who said, well, no, uh, so what? Um, you know, they're acting like spoiled brats. And, they, you know, they didn't get what they wanted from Lincoln. So now they've taken their toys and they've gone home and declared war. Um, you know, and there, there are the, then there were other sides who argued that, you know, this was just a conventional war between two different nations it was just probably over you know it's just the old story about you know over resources and land and they they, you know these guys would work it out eventually uh then there was the ones of of well we 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 should back the south because well you know we don't want to we don't annoy them because what about what about our cotton that we need and secondly these northerners are all these uh, horrible you know tariff loving businessmen who are who are you were, you know, trying to steal away our industry, whereas the Southerners were all big free traders, just like us. Um, so there were all, all these sort of contending interpretations of what the, of what the war was about. Uh, what very few people actually said was, 
was was that it was about slavery. This this didn't this wasn't a, a very popular explanation. And so, in Britain, there were there were isolated um, there were isolated numbers of, of abolitionists. They're mostly religious dissenters, uh, Quakers, and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, it wasn't it wasn't really very popular at all. It wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a motivating force in, in any real way. Um, so that's why that's one of the reasons why they decide on neutrality. Um, and you know, so they have a kind of when, when you declare neutrality, it meant that there's a certain di- diplomatic status the Confederacy had. And for instance, uh, they could dock their ships in in Britain to get them repaired, and they could buy coal and that kind of thing. So they were allowed in. They were allowed to, to to you know to to, to have safety there. Um, but uh, well, you know, which the North, of course, complained mightily about. Um, but at the same time, they weren't granted the status of a. They were they were granted the status of a belligerent rather than an independent state. Which annoyed the South. The, the Northerners, on the other hand, uh, you know, were, were annoyed that the South had given, been given who they regarded as this was a kind of an internal police action against a bunch of rebels. And you know, why were the British, you know, handling them with kid gloves anyway? So there was, a, you know, everyone had something to complain about, which was probably the, the the intent behind the act of neutrality, and that it pleased no one exactly, um, but it kept so to speak, Britain at peace. And it meant that Britain could stand and watch. And once a winner started emerging, then they could back that side. And that, you know, that's just how diplomacy works. So that was the sort of the British attitude towards this whole thing. What it did mean was, from Bullock's point of view, uh, was that it made his mission much, much more complicated than he'd originally intended. See, it, it was, he, was a, he was a victim of bad timing, is that when he left uh, Canada, he, he goes to Canada to, to sail to, to, to Liverpool um, to cover his tracks a bit. Um, you know, Britain hadn't declared neutrality at that time. So as far as Bullock was concerned, he was going into friendly territory. As far as he knew, Britain was super friendly towards the Confederates, especially when he went to Liverpool, which was, which as he reported when he got there, he saw more Confederate bunting in the streets there than he did in Richmond. I mean, Liverpool was incredibly pro-Confederate because of these cotton and, and cotton links and so on. Uh, and so he, so yeah, he just thinks this is going to be a doddle. But when he gets there and he gets, gets off the ship, uh, this act of neutrality complicates his mission because it, it circumscribes his, his, his abilities to, to maneuver uh, he suddenly got to contend with something called, and let's not go into too much detail here, but it's called the Foreign Enlistment Act, which was an, a very old act, piece of law that had been passed, I think, 40 or 50 years earlier. It had never been tested in 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 court at all. Um, so it was, it was a law in the books that nobody had ever done anything about. But what it did do, it had originally been passed to stop British mercenaries signing up for South American rebellions back in about 1819 or something. But as Bullock discovered when he got there, there was also a Navy part to that. And that that blocked British ships, uh, oh, sorry, uh, uh, ships for a, a foreign war 
and uh, British sailors signing up for sh you know ships that were built in British dockyards and sent into a, into into combat. Uh, he has to now get around that somehow, and so he reads the he reads the legislation very very carefully. And I, I think, as I say in the book, he finds a loophole that you could sail a ship through or ship a, a, a sailor a fleet through rather. Um, and that's what that's what allows him to to operate in Britain. But he has to do it, you know. He has to sneak around, and he has to be quite quiet, and he has to tiptoe around, um, because if he makes himself too overt, then the British authorities will clamp down on on, on him in order to preserve neutrality. Uh, and this is something, of course, that his his uh, his nemesis Dudley will will exploit, and that's part of the the story of the book. What are just a few of the intelligence methods that, that these spies used when they were in Liverpool? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm an intelligence historian, you know, from Washington spies and, and so on. So, you know, I find it interesting to, to you know, about, you know, learning about you know, old time intelligence history. Um, but what, what you have to keep in mind is that this was not, this was not the proto CIA or anything like that. This is a, this is a uh, this is these are strictly sort of one man or maybe two men operations and in and you remember it takes you know it can take two months or six weeks to get a message back to back to home so bullock and dudley uh, are essentially operating by themselves they have to use their own initiative their own enterprise to um conduct their conduct their activities um, so, you know, they, you know, they, and they, and they don't have a lot of money a lot of the time. So, uh, you know, what they, what they tend to do is, I mean, Dudley tends to, uh, hire detect private detectives to trail and track, um, to, to trail and track, uh, uh, Bullock and, and his friends, uh, and, you know, in order to try and trace where they're, they're by, you know, where, you know, why he's going to certain shipyards, what's he saying, um, is he recruiting secretly sailors, which would be against the law? Um, can he get, uh, you know, can, how, how is he funding all of this? What's, what's the dark financing behind this? Where's, where's the black money? Um, you know, who's paying for all of these ships? So Dudley's trying to penetrate this, this sort of network of, of front companies and, and, and allies that, that Bullock has constructed around itself. You've got to think of him almost like a, as Dudley does, as this, you know, this, this giant spider sitting in the middle of a, of a vast web, um, invisible web. Um, whereas Bullock, for his, for his perspective, he knows perfectly well that Dudley's trying to find him. And, you know, he, he goes underground a lot. He, 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 you know, he goes undercover, he assumes disguises. He, uh, you know, he writes in code. Uh, he, uh, and one of his biggest coups is that he manages to recruit, um, a spy within a, 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 a Dudley's own sort of uh, the, the firm of lawyers that he that he that he retains. So Bullock is able to see what Dudley's going to do days or even weeks before he actually does it. So it looks as if he's got some, some sort of necromantic powers to to see the future. Um, and uh, you know Bullock also has the ace in the hole, and that is uh, he has a mole within the British Foreign Office on the American desk. And this guy, we, I talk about him in the book and, you know, we, we investigate or I investigate who he is and, you know, what his background is and why he did it. But this guy sees all the correspondence between the American, the American ambassador, Charles Francis Adams, and the British Foreign Secretary, uh, Lord Russell. And, so, <laughs> and he sees 
it, the letters before anyone else does. And so he can tip off Bullock that, uh, like, for instance, a raid is about to go down in a couple of days. And so Bullock manages to, you know, squirrel away and evade all of all of uh, Dudley's snares and traps. So it's a, you know it's an it's sort of an interesting um, sort of cat and mouse. Or as I like to uh, thought about it, uh, yeah, I don't know if you remember the the old um, the Mad magazine strip, mm-hmm. Spy versus Spy. Oh, sure, you know, yeah, yeah. The black Spy. And the black spy. <laughs> they both try and outwit each other by increasingly clever ways. Uh, so it's a little <laughs> like that. You know, um, that's how that's how, that's how I uh, that's how I envisaged it when I was writing the book. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Charles Francis Adams, uh, who was there at the time, and of course he's uh, the son and grandson of two presidents who had also served as ministers to um, to England. Uh, and and you touched upon this was to what degree were the British really aware of the level of intelligence activity that was happening in Liverpool, and did they react to it? Uh, I mean, aside from uh, uh, I should say, aside from uh, the foreign minister's, uh, I know his initial meeting with Adams. The British were usually aware that there was something going on, but both sides had an interest in not advertising that. Uh, the British took a very dim view of espionage being conducted within the kingdom. And, uh, you know, the more they knew about it, the more likely it was was that they would start asking too many questions about Bullock and his money and whether the shipyards that he was talking to were contravening or violating the Foreign Enlistment Act. So, and from Dudley's perspective, he couldn't be seen. He was, he was under strict orders from Charles Francis Adams not to stir the pot too much, not to you know, openly conduct intelligence operations uh, on the British mainland, mostly because his predecessor, uh, a fellow, fascinating fellow called uh, Sanford, um, had <laughs> been one of these, uh, had been a bit of a, a kind of a lunatic. He'd been there for a short time and he had gone around and he, uh, he had, he was, he was talking about sabotaging uh, British ships in the Thames to blow them up, uh, to prevent them going to the south. And he was talking about kidnapping uh, Confederates, uh, agents or Confederate representatives in London, and, and you know, taking them back to to Washington for a good going over. So this had almost blown up in his face, quite literally. Uh, and Charles Francis Adams had been summoned by the Foreign Minister, uh, for the by the Prime Minister rather, um, for a real dressing down about, um, you know, why are you <laughs> threatening to plant bombs in the middle of my of my uh, of my country, and so you know Dudley was ordered when he came over. Dudley was ordered just you know keep it very cool and under your hat. Do not make a spectacle of yourself. And so that was both of these you know this idea of secrecy had to had to sort of circumscribe them both. Now I uh, asked this question earlier of your dissertation research, but it's something I I like to ask the historians on this podcast. In the course of your research, which is significant, it's extraordinary, and whenever I'm grading end-of-semester research papers for my midshipmen, the first thing I go to are what are the primary sources they used. But in in the course of your research for this book, uh, what was the aha moment? You, you're, you're dusting off old papers in some archive. You come across a piece of information, and you're like, wow, I need to put that in the book. 
this explains this, or there's another significance to it. Did you have one of those moments? Uh, I think I had two of those moments. One of which was that I found out that there's a very obscure series of volumes that I think anybody's looked at in, in more than a century in the uh, National Archives that used to belong to the, the State Department. And what they were... Sorry, I want to clarify. The, uh, is that the old PRO in National Archives oh, in no, the UK no, uh, or National no, uh, Archives here? U.S. Okay. Yeah, right. in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And uh, the... Um, but the what they were is they are the collected dispatches of consuls from the various cities, uh, you know, the course of the 19th century. Um, and one of those series is, you know, uh, dispatches from the from Liverpool consuls, including, of course, Dudley. And they are, you know, they were they were kind of microfilmed, I think, back in the 1960s or something. And, you know, they've been sort of, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in a drawer somewhere. So what I did was just before uh, COVID broke out, just by, by luck, I happened to um, sort of order them to be uh, um, digitized by the National Archives. And it took a couple of months, but I eventually they sent me, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of the collected reports. I mean, almost daily, sometimes, you know, sometimes at least two or three times a week, maybe weekly reports of Dudley that he was sending to uh, Adams in London and also to the State Department that detailed uh, in, in, you know, in, you know, very, very um, exactly and precisely what he'd been doing vis-a-vis uh, Bullock and you know these things are thousands of pages i mean thousands of images and so you know i spent a lot of time going through them reading them and so on and and you know you get that's how you get the you know the sort of the structure of the book and that's how i discovered mm -hmm. that at one point uh dudley had uncovered this vast uh web of of companies operating in liverpool that were hand in hand with working with with dudley uh, with Bullock, sorry, and there was something like two hundred of them. He'd listed them exactly. He'd listed who the who the owners were, who where they were meeting, what they were doing, how they were raising money, how they were funneling money to Bullock, and all this. It's, it's like it's it's great um, bit of uh, of intelligence work by Dudley, who'd, and he'd done it with by himself, uh, you know, with the aid of a, a detective or two, and he just burnt the midnight oil and you know gotten down to you know. Furrowed, furrowed his brow and <laughs> just put this thing together. He's, he's proven probably, you know, there's uh, that those uh, those uh, those funny things you see on TV shows with the you know the red thread and the uh, all the pages, you know, as, you know, tacked up on someone's wall with all the connections between them. Uh, it was essentially that was probably what his office looked like when he was doing all of this. So that was a great that was a great aha moment, knowing that you know we have it from the the word the, the, the almost you know from the hand and word and mouth of the of the of the participants involved um you know the story of his of his espionage activities it was it was akin to when i found out that the uh, the copa ring and the washington spies sent you know something like 190 letters with to george washington and that they you know in sometimes in, encrypted but they you know detailing their activities um, over the course of the war. So when you have something like that, you've just got the biography of Washington's private spy ring. And in this case, we had the biography of, of Dudley's own intelligence operation. Uh, on the other side, the other aha moment was, I think it was in the Mariner's Museum at Newport. Um, I found out that, that Bullock had left behind some papers. 
Now, Bullock was a very cautious fellow, and he clearly uh, destroyed the vast majority of his of his of his papers. Anything to do with with this uh, with his wartime activities, but what he did have was in this in this collection was a the the, the collection of uh, letter handwritten letters from his spy the, the one i mentioned earlier the spy that he had within uh dudley's uh, law firm this this sort of clerk who was paid off to tip him off and so you see it and it's like you know a couple of dozen pages long of these reports from this guy and saying that you know what what's happening who'd come into the office who dudley was talking to so it's, it's fantastic you get to know what Bullock knew about what Dudley was doing as he was, or just even before he was doing it, uh, and explains what, how Bullock managed to pull off so many tricks. See, it wasn't magic. He was, as Dudley realizes, you know, in, in sort of the, you know, just before sort of Act Three, so to speak. You know, he's not a magician. He's just a. He's just a. He's just a conjurer. And that's all he is, and that this guy can be beaten because he just been beating Dudley over and over and over again. He looked it looked like an impossible mission, but finally Dudley gets him when he realizes that, that this guy does have weaknesses and vulnerabilities. So those are the two great aha moments uh, in terms of primary sources. I think. How did you become interested in this story and the moment that you said, "No, I've got to write this book." Um, well, it's, it's interesting in, in the sense that, you know, like any, like any writer, you come up with ideas and you go, wow, that's a fantastic idea. I really need to write that down. And so you, you have a little, uh, you know, kind of a tickle file, I guess, or mm -hmm. a little yeah. file you mm -hmm. have on your, on your computer and you go and you write down a, a, you know, like a paragraph on this idea and you, you stick it away in a little, on, in, in, in a fold document folder or something. Uh, and you, after a while you build up quite a lot of these. And 98% of the time you, you go through them when you're looking for new ideas or, or you know, are between books, as they say, and you go, oh, wow, let me look at these. And then most of the time you just go, what a terrible idea. Was I <laughs> drunk when I wrote this? This is the stupidest idea. No one's gonna read this. Um, but there was one that I'd written down, I think, uh, I think the first mention of it is in about 2007, 2008. So it was just a couple of years after Washington Spies came out. So I was, I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe another spy book, that'd be cool. And I had heard the story about these two, this, uh, you know, two, this Confederate and Union guy in, in Liverpool, and, I, I, and I'd written it down, I'd written this paragraph, and I think I, if I dig up the document, I actually I think I actually have their, you know, Mad Magazine spy versus spy kind of notated on there. Um, and I'd written it down, and then I got the problem is I then got waylaid by by other books like, um, you know, the the airship. Um, airplane book and American rifle and men of war and, you know, about the American experience of combat. Um, uh, and then a couple of years ago, I was looking through it again. And I thought, Oh yeah, I really have to do that. You know, I have to do that, that book on, on, on the, on what at the time I was calling it the secret agents after the uh, Conrad novel. And the problem was, is that I couldn't work out how to do it. Um, it's all very easy to write down spy versus spy. That would be really cool, but <laughs> you have to figure out. And what I mean by that is, is that once you started looking into the story, it was incredibly complex. Um, Dudley is dealing with, and Dudley and Bullock are dealing with dozens and dozens of ships. Uh, you know, events. You know, unfortunately, history is complicated. Um, 
And so, you know, things don't happen as they do in a TV show, nice and chronologically. Uh, the things that tend to overlap, they get conflicted, ideas get picked up, they get dropped, they come back again. It, it's, you know, very, very hard. To, it was very, very hard to come up with a storyline for this. Um, and I think that's what had, had really messed up people before who, who tried to do this and that they got so involved in this sort of thicket of facts and figures and details that they'd gotten lost uh, in the it, it lost in there. Um, and, it, and it took me a little while. And then the, the great um, moment was when I worked out, oh, you know, if you just divide this into three phases, uh, the book works and you keep to those phases um, and you just cut out, you know, dozens and dozens of ships that, you know, like blockade runners that, that aren't really important. Um, and you, you can make this book work and then you can have the, the, the spy versus spy structure and it'll, it'll all run really, really pretty beautifully. Um, and it was quite useful because the three phases were, and I, I mentioned this earlier, they were, and they were usefully alliterative. Uh, they were stage one, uh, uh, the runners or blockade runners, stage two, the raiders, commerce raiders, stage three, the rams, the laird rams. Once you have, once, once that happened, that, uh, you know, you had the three part structure of a book after that, it just ran. I mean, I wrote this book. Including the, 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 a huge amount of the primary material. Um, I mean, this whole thing took, I think, ten months. So it's the fastest book I ever wrote, mostly because you had I had this structure in my head, and I just kept rigidly mm -hmm. to it, and it all worked out. Um, it, it all worked out, uh, you know, sort of well, hopefully well in the end. Now I have to, uh, also agree with something you said earlier about the files that historians keep on the possible books that they'll work on. My next book that I've, I'm working on right now is about Admiral Rickover, but I have a file that I've been working on for a couple of years, very slowly, uh, and there is a character in this book. It was a one-line or two-line thing, and I, I looked it up, and I was like, he's got to be in the file. Uh, and so I want to thank you because <laughs> it's, it's now another, uh, it's now another path that I'm going to take on, on this particular, uh, work in the future. Uh, Alex Rose, uh, I, I want to thank you. You, this was a fantastic book. I really had a tough time putting this one down, uh, as historian, as a consumer of, of history books, uh, as a Naval intelligence officer, I appreciated this on so many levels, the level of research and you, when you're reading this book uh, to ladies and gentlemen who are, who are listening, you really feel like you're there. And I think that's the mark of a really, really good writer. Uh, and that is Alex Rose. It's not only well-researched, it is extremely well-written. So, Alex, thank you for, for writing this book. And I do want to thank you for, for joining me on, on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on again. Pleasure to be here. And for our listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and other episodes, please leave feedback on whatever platform you're listening to this, and have a great day.
Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.